Okay, I'll, I'll admit it. I was a child magician. It's what defined my childhood and adolescence. I was doing magic tricks constantly for friends, always having my face in a magic book. And from about fifth grade until the end of high school, I was doing magic shows at birthday parties, summer festivals, school events, you name it. I was operating a little business. And, of course, I wanted that business to grow. So I went to the library, I'd get books on marketing, I bought promotional materials designed specifically for entertainers. I was all in. I, I think, actually, that's where my interest in psychology and persuasion started. How could I get the parents of the world to book me, the great Andini, for their events? But I didn't really have to buy ads in newspapers or hang flyers around town. My little operation mostly sustained itself on word of mouth. My parents would talk to other parents, those parents would talk to teachers and librarians. It seemed that every new birthday party I booked was because one mom heard from another mom that I was good. And let's face it, I was cheap also. Word of mouth is not just powerful for small-time teenage magicians. It's also what keeps the gears turning for major consumer brands and even politicians or anyone else who requires the public to know about them. So when are people most likely to pass along a recommendation? And why do we do it? Why do we feel like it's worth anyone's time for us to share our opinions? To learn more about word of mouth, I talked to Jake Teeny. Jake is a PhD student at Ohio State University, and soon he'll be starting as an assistant professor of marketing at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Jake studies when and why people share their opinions. Jake and I have known each other for a while, actually. We co-author a blog for Psychology Today called A Difference of Opinion. We talk about public opinion, attitudes, persuasion, the kinds of stuff that comes up on this show. I thought this would be a nice chance to have a chat with Jake and learn more about the psychology of word of mouth. So let's jump right in. Okay, so do, do you want to start by just... Um, I, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about word of mouth as a thing. So what's your sense of how people define word of mouth as a phenomenon? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I think it depends a lot on the researchers and their background that you speak to. So if you're coming from a social psychology perspective, word of mouth is often construed in terms of advocacy. So when and why people are trying to convince others of their beliefs. But in marketing, uh, it can be anytime someone talks about a brand, talks about a business, uh, anything of this nature. So it just talks about in any way? In any way, yeah. It could be talking bad. It could be uh, they just went and bought a Starbucks drink earlier in the day. Any sort of mention about a brand or its product between people unaffiliated with the company constitutes word of mouth. And I've heard you say that Word of mouth is a, the kind of thing that companies care a lot about, and yeah. it sort of creeps into the questions they ask in surveys. So for a company, if we stay mm -hmm. talking about like companies and mm -hmm. businesses, why would they care about word of mouth? Word of mouth is widely considered as the best form of advertising possible. In fact, you know, just to throw a couple of figures at you, about 85% of small businesses rely on word of mouth um, to stay afloat. Uh, 90 2% of consumers trust word of mouth more than any other form of information about a company or brand. And marketers themselves, about two-thirds of them all say it's the most important form of advertising. And yet, what I which I find most interesting is less than 20% feel like they know how to actually influence it. You, you mean companies feel like 
by and large, that they don't know how to shape word of mouth. Yeah, exactly. Even though they regard it as the most important form of advertising. If you're to, so the money that companies are spending on advertising is often astronomical. <laughs> is the is the implication of this that a lot of that is wasted effort? If so much of actual business is being driven by just spontaneous conversations, I think there's definitely a shift these days in light of social media and the online revolution. You used to see a lot more money put into traditional advertising, like television, radio, things of this nature. Um, but not only are marketers putting more money into kind of uh, promoting word of mouth, but they're actually becoming kind of sneaky and clever about tricking other people into thinking advertisements or word of mouth. Like what, what, what would that look like? So, for example, um, so the marketers working on uh, Mike Bloomberg's recent failed presidential run. Uh, tried to design memes to look like they were generated by just random users when in fact they were uh, the result of uh, marketers uh, making these memes. Other marketers have used websites like Reddit and rather than just kind of posting advertisements on the site, they actually get people to go into the comments section and write very compelling comments, which then seem like they're coming from actual consumers but are really getting people or redirecting people to go to their websites. It's, so I'm going to circle back to the uh, fake reviews thing mm-hmm. in a second. But when you mentioned Bloomberg, I was talking to someone just last night about this, just because he so famously was pouring tons of money into <laughs> a, a presidential run. And so is there any reason to think that this word of mouth works differently for politics than it does for companies and products? Or is word of mouth just sort of like a more basic social thing people do that shapes uh, everyone else's actions? Yeah, you know, I think with businesses and companies, uh, one of the reasons it's most effective is because people don't trust traditional advertising. They think that businesses are going to put their best face forward, even if it's a lie. Um, And so if you get feedback from uh, another customer, it's a little bit more trustworthy and reliable. And that's why it's typically been shown to be so impactful. When it comes to politics, I imagine that there is similar distrust in regard to the source of the message when it's coming from like the politician's camp, but maybe not to the same extent that uh, consumers expect it with businesses. But even so, uh, I guess this just does circle back to the fake reviews. (laughs) Uh, I mean, this is a case where it's not more trustworthy to go Mm -hmm. off what seems like word of mouth. So is there, uh, maybe you don't know what the data are, but are there shifts in people's trust in word of mouth given given new means of communicating? Yeah, you know, to be honest, most of the research, so pretty much when you look at any research on word of mouth and the impact of word of mouth, it unanimously says it's the most meaningful form of advertising. But a lot of that research was done in, you know, five years ago at the earliest often. And so I think there is a rapid shift in the ecology of information and how people are trusting it. And so we could very, very likely uh, see people trusting word of mouth less. So are there, but the, but this is an area that's been, there's been lots of energy in this area mm-hmm. is my impression these mm-hmm. days. Yes. And so what are, what, what are the new kids saying about <laughs> word of mouth? Yeah. So kind of the original focus of word of mouth um, was on whether or not it was impactful. And the reason that this was often the focus was because it was very easy to study in the lab. You could just give people a message and see whether it was impactful. 
Today, the real kind of trend and word of mouth research is trying to figure out, well, why and when do people engage in word of mouth and spread word of mouth? Because, you know, as I was saying earlier, marketers really don't understand how to influence it. So they're trying to get a better understanding and how to promote it or, you know, make the buzz happen. Um, so much more research has focused on the antecedents to word of mouth rather than the consequences. And that's generally where you see the research heading. And, and so what does that say? This is a good time to start talking about why. Why do we do this? Why would I care? And I, I've seen you, as a little bit of a background, I've seen you give a talk where you took a screenshot of something I posted online <laughs> as, as an example of word of mouth. Um, mm-hmm. So why did I do that? Why was I compelled to share with the world some some product that I liked? Well, I'm sure it was a very compelling reason and motive <laughs> that you did it for. Um, but yeah, oh man, there's so many different reasons um, people engage in word of mouth. And in addition to the difficulty of studying in the lab before kind of computers and digital media, it was just hard to study what people talked about. Um, there has also been a difficulty in trying to identify the very diverse set of motives that underlie people's uh, reasons for engaging in word of mouth. There, there have been some attempts uh, by researchers to try and categorize it. So, you know, they'll say uh, a big part of word of mouth is impression management. So we talk about brands and purchases to make ourselves look good. Uh, a big part of it is emotion regulation. So trying to make ourselves feel better after bad or good information. Um, sometimes we want to persuade others. Sometimes we want to bond or connect with others, you know, if both people like the same brand or something like that. So there's really a large number uh, of reasons why this happens. And now we're kind of getting enough data that it can be organized into a more systematic uh, de- depiction. But what, so mostly what I'm hearing from you is that it's selfish, right? Mo- most of those motivations that you were talking about are like, it's all about me. Am I going to look cool? <laughs> Am I going to make friends? Do I get to say what I think is important? It, has there been any interest in like, I don't know, call it altruistic word of mouth? Like people are just truly motivated to say, I, this will make your life better. So it's my duty to tell you <laughs> about this product that exists. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, there actually has been less work on that. Um, but that is definitely a motive that drives people's uh, intentions to engage in word of mouth. In fact, uh, there was a recent paper looking at how uh, social closeness, so how close you are interpersonally with the target of your word of mouth impacts word of mouth. And what they find is that when you're speaking word of mouth to distant others, uh, you're more likely to talk about positive things because that makes you look good positive talking about positive stuff makes us look better but when it comes to people we're really close to we're actually more likely to share negative word of mouth with them because we want to help them we want to protect them from bad purchases (laughs) or bad brands so the the motive is definitely there but it is overwhelmingly shadowed by kind of the perspective that we want to enhance ourselves or make ourselves feel better Okay, so let, let's talk about what you've done in this mm. field. So I don't, based on what I know of, of the stuff that you've done, most of what you've talked about is sort of the state of the literature in general. Mm-hmm. So what what are you, both what have you done in the past to try and get a handle on what word of mouth is, how it works, why people do it, and what sorts of things seem like they're the unopened or unanswered questions that you're looking at next? 
Um, so we'll keep in mind that I'm still a graduate student, so my uh, production level is not as great as it uh, will one day hopefully be. But some of the stuff uh, that I've worked on, you know, one of the, the biggest predictors of word of mouth is the physiological arousal that people feel in response to the uh, information. So how kind of energized or buzzed they feel. And they find this in so many different domains. You know, the, the New York Times articles that elicit the most arousal um, are the most likely to be shared. Memes that generate the most arousal are the most likely to be shared, so on and so forth. But for all the data can showing... I, can I pause you there for a second? Yeah, so what yeah. what does that feel like? like you, mm-hmm. So this is one of those cases where there's a language to the psychology that mm-hmm. may not necessarily be what the experience feels like. Like mm-hmm. when you say that, I, I've never opened up the New York Times and been like, zowie, <laughs> <laughs> this is, I just am so mm-hmm. energized now. Yeah. Um, so what, yeah. what is that? Act, and maybe it's hard to unpack, but, or, or what have they done to measure? Like what is arousing or mm-hmm. energizing about information? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, first off, arousal is kind of a tricky word because it has a little bit different connotation, especially if you type it into a Google image search. Uh, Um, (laughs) When uh, researchers are talking about arousal, they're talking about essentially the activation of your parasympathetic nervous system or the feelings therein. So when you feel excited and you kind of got that buzz inside of you, that's arousal. But similarly, so is when you feel really anxious and you kind of feel that buzz inside of you, that's also arousal. So it's this mm, active mobility state um, that derives from ancient evolution in terms of getting us to do things. So if mm-hmm. you've ever drank in a lot of coffee and you kind of just feel wired, that's high arousal. Um, and it comes in two different forms. So there's energetic arousal. It's kind of that positive energy you feel when you have, you know, you've learned some good news or you're heading off to a vacation. And then there's tense arousal. And tense arousal is associated with negative experiences or anticipating undesirable outcomes, that kind of uh, anxiety you feel in response to these two things. And so there's all this research showing that arousal. So if you read this New York Times article and, you know, you learn that they're giving out free cars to the first 10 callers, you get really excited. You feel that arousal and then you act on it or you share it with others. But uh, for all the research on arousal, no one really understood why it motivated um, word of mouth. You know, there had been some suggestions that just makes people more active and they want to do anything after feeling more aroused. Um, But with my research, we really wanted to try and better understand why this fundamental predictor worked, because when you understand why it works, then you can hopefully influence it better. And what we found is that arousal uh, is linked with so much word of mouth, because word of mouth is uh, one very powerful way to kind of modulate our arousal. So we don't like high tense arousal. We want to get back to low feelings of low tenseness, so like peace and calmness. But also we don't like low feelings of energetic arousal. We don't like feeling drowsy or complacent. And so we share to kind of boost our arousal. So depending on what kind of arousal you're feeling, more tense or more energetic, people will share to either increase their energetic arousal or decrease their tense arousal. 
and so you show that when people have those opportunities, it, it mm-hmm. returns them to baseline or, or yes, something like that? Exactly, exactly. So, you know, in the lab, we had participants actually text their friends either about hmm. things that were making that, you know, that they were excited about or things they were anxious about. And we showed for those that were allowed to actually text their friends, um, when they were able to text their friends about exciting events, it made them more excited. It increased their energetic arousal. Hmm. Um, However, if they weren't able to text their friends, we see a sharp decline in energetic arousal. So people use word of mouth as a way to kind of feel good, you know, to keep that buzz going. And then on the flip side, when they have bad information, even if you're not allowed to share it with people, it's still that kind of tenseness decreases a little bit over time. But if you're actually allowed to engage in word of mouth, you can really drop that tense arousal a lot faster. So people are using word of mouth as this arousal management strategy. Hmm. And in those studies you were using, was it products or was it what were people sharing with their friends? Um, So those were just broadly construed as consumer experiences. So they ranged from everything, uh, having to pay dues at a clinic to getting tickets to uh, John Elton uh, concert. Elton John. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I was like, John Elton, that I, doesn't sound right. But <laughs> I was like, I've not heard of, of John Elton coming through town, but uh, very well could be what, what uh, your students, uh, participants might have been interested in. <laughs> so in general, the kinds of work that you've done, have they, so those are, uh, um, uh, seems like if I'm remembering what you said, mostly consumer yeah. things, right? So I've um, done some from the like a uh, more social political aspect too. So when people try to convince others of what politician to vote for, or what stance to take on a social issue. Um, and we find that really, it doesn't matter what the topic is, the psychology remains pretty similar across them. Um, but I, I've also looked at those domains as well. What you're describing here is a lot about sharing information, right? Like mm-hmm. I just kind of tell you about this thing and it it, it kind of helps me sustain my excitement for it or it helps me manage mm-hmm. uh, this emotional experience. But is that different? Because then you described a case of trying to convince somebody else. Mm-hmm. So are those two things different? Is me just saying like, wow, this I'm really loving this new album by this mm-hmm. musical artist. Is that different from me saying like, you had better check out this album. Yeah, no, I I think that's um, an important distinction that can get lost and has been lost in a lot of the literature. Until recently, those two types of word of mouth weren't really distinguished, this kind of persuasive word of mouth where I'm trying to convince you to do something versus more of just a sharing word of mouth, um, where I'm just kind of telling you about my experience. Essentially, what researchers find is Anything that predicts the persuasive form of word of mouth also predicts the sharing word of mouth. But there are some things um, that only predict the sharing side of things. So if you're very clear about what your opinion on a topic is, you probably have no problem saying, oh, yeah, this is what I think. But only when you believe that your stance is correct, it's valid, it's the right attitude to have, you actually go out and try to persuade people. So it's not just enough to know what you think. You have to know what you think is right. Does it seem like going out to persuade is more effortful? So like I'm thinking, right, it's easy for me to like dash off a tweet and say like, oh, I love this thing. But it's a different thing for me to sit down and be like, let me tell you why you have to try this thing out. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think there are definitely probably differences in the amount of effort people in 
do between this persuasion versus sharing. But you can think of thoughtless uh, persuasion and very thoughtful sharing as well. I think um, one of the main differences is people's identity gets staked a little bit differently. So, for example, if I tell you that I really recommend you watch this movie, I'm kind of putting my my reputation on the line a little bit versus I just say, oh, man, I really liked this movie. I'm not necessarily recommending it for you. Well, there I'm not as at stake as much. And so I think there are a little different social consequences. So when you talk about effort, um, there just might be slightly different costs between trying to persuade someone versus just sharing with them. And, and yeah, maybe does it commit you to it more? I'm thinking of times where if I were to just sort of say off offhand, like, oh, I really love this movie. And then if someone says, oh, I hated it, I, I, I backpedal immediately. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, everyone has their own taste. And I, maybe I didn't actually like it that much. But, but in some ways, if you're like, no, no, you have to watch this movie. Like, you're going to love this. And this is why it's great. If someone goes like, oh, I didn't really like it that much. You've kind of committed. Like, you, you're yeah. almost displaying that you're committing to this position by mm-hmm. going out on a limb to try to persuade people. And it reminds me a little bit, I, I'm curious if something like a cognitive dissonance thing could mm. could kick in where it's like, well, there's all that research on hypocrisy, mm-hmm. right? So there's a, a area of research where people find that when individuals actively try to advocate for some uh, position or some behavior, and then they themselves are reminded that they don't actually always do the thing they're telling other people to do that makes them feel uncomfortable and then actually gets them to start doing the thing they've been telling people to do. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because by going out on a limb and telling people what they ought to be doing kind of commits you to that position in a very public way. And so I wonder if if persuasion just in general does that, right? Or even beyond whether it actually commits people that that their audience feels like, wow, this person must really know where they stand if they're telling me where I should stand. Yeah, no, that actually, it reminds me of this really kind of fun study where they found, so they looked at two different kinds of word of mouth and its impact on people. You could imagine word of mouth in this persuasion, I recommend uh, that you watch this movie, or this just more sharing where I like this movie. And as you might expect, readers of those reviews, when they read the persuasive one, I recommend it, they're more likely to actually go out and watch the movie than if they just read the one that says, I like it. What's kind of paradoxical is that experts on that topic are more likely to use the I like it language, whereas novices or low knowledge people are more likely to use the I recommend it language. So essentially, we're getting this effect where people are following the advice of novices more than experts, because novices tend to be using this more explicit endorsement language. What is it about experts that they prefer the I like it language? Is there, do you know why? Uh, I don't remember exactly what they say in this study, but from other work, I believe it just has to do a little bit more um, with the cautiousness or skepticism that comes with kind of expertise. You know, just like researchers, psychologists are hesitant to say, always do this, never do that. When you're an expert and you know kind of all the nuance to it, you're a little more tentative. Um, and how you give your recommendations or your advice. Well, what are the challenges in doing word of mouth research? So part of me in hearing what you're describing 
is reminding me of word of mouth in the wild, which is messy and all over the place in infiltrating every corner <laughs> of our existence. <laughs> mm. But but we know that those are hard places to really get a great handle on what people are thinking when they make these decisions. And so I just wonder, since you've been steeped in this for so long, what, what do you think are like the main fundamental challenges of doing research on word of mouth? Yeah, you know, the 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 biggest issue, I think, is one that has been a little remedied today, but is the issue that's kind of plagued this field of research for the beginning. And it's just a matter of getting naturalistic conversation in the lab. We now have great access to big data sets like you're talking about, you know, with Twitter um, and Facebook and all these online posts. Uh, but that's a lot different than the conversations people have in person. In fact, there's a lot of research disentangling the two and showing that people talk about things differently online and in different frequency than they do in person. So to really understand like how we can generate that person to person buzz is just difficult to study in the lab because they require elaborate setup. Um, it's hard not to make it feel artificial or contrived. And so really trying to figure out a paradigm where you can get more naturalistic conversation between participants or friends um, will probably be the next biggest step uh, in word of mouth research, particularly if you want to understand the mechanisms and motivations, because we can all go to big data and scrape that big data for information, but we can't really get inside the black box of the person who typed that unless we bring them into the lab and put them through studies or self-report surveys and things of that nature. I mean, what are the kinds of things we'd want to know from people? If all we see is their their tweets or their Facebook post or their blog post, what what would you love to also know about them? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of it would be kind of like the psychological uh, mechanism that precipitated the sharing. So, you know, we've all had the instance where we liked a movie but told no one about it. And then we liked another movie for a similar degree, but then are telling everybody about it. So what is it about those two? What are the differences and how the consumer perceived the movie or perceived their experience um, that really led them to go out and talk to others? So we've, we've got uh, challenges to address in terms of actually accessing the minds of people who are doing this. You sort of alluded to it just now, but what are the what are the remaining like big questions? Like what are what are people most actively debating in terms of when, why, how, wh what's the big unknowns in word of mouth right now? Yeah, you know, because word of mouth is, as we've been discussing, can be tricky to study in the lab. It's a little bit of a random scatter plot of what has been studied and what is being studied. So I wouldn't say there's any one big burning kind of question uh, that is driving word of mouth researchers right now. I'd say there's a big trend to and analyzing big data and then trying to replicate some of the effects they find there in the lab. Um, but one area I think we'll see uh, start to emerge is how consumers perceive other consumers in engaging in word of mouth. So when we share about a movie we really like with somebody, we oftentimes don't share it with anybody. We share it with a specific set of people, at least in person-to-person -person conversations. So what about the perception of these other consumers leads someone to share word of mouth with them? Most of the work is focused 
on uh, the individual consumer's own attitudes and beliefs and what how those contribute to sharing word of mouth. But word of mouth is always an interpersonal interaction. So how do our perceptions of others and their attitudes and their beliefs inform who and how we engage in word of mouth? Are these are these big open questions or are these the questions you're looking at right now? Oh, no, big open question. I mean, coincidentally, okay. they're the ones I'm looking at now too <laughs> because there's so much space to be asking questions. Um, but we're starting to see a lot of uh, this kind of perspective in social psychology and looking at advocacy in that regard. Um, I think one of the reasons maybe this is a little slower to emerge in marketing is because it may be more difficult for brands or companies to influence, you know, the perceptions of others. And so they're more interested in, well, what can we do to motivate individual consumers to share rather than trying to figure out, well, why do they share all the time? Mm-hmm. And and what's what's like right on the horizon for you in your program of work? Yeah, so um, right now I've been looking at a lot of political word of mouth and uh, why people don't want to engage in it with uh, others of an opposite stance. So you know, we're the U.S. is plagued with polarization right now, and people both sides are becoming more extreme and the way to get common ground is to get people of opposite sides to talk to one another and find out, oh yeah, your attitude isn't as extreme as I expected it to be. So I've been really trying to understand the perspective and uh, inferences that people make about those on the other side of the aisle. So when people, when someone just expresses a political opinion, how are they viewed? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, but most, uh, but in particular, a political opinion opposite to your own. So sure. how can we get people to engage in this kind of interpersonal discourse in a civic and, you know, uh, helpful manner? So if people are, it sounds like some of this is how do we, um, how do we change people's reactions to political discourse, right? So if, yeah. if you're saying, how am I, I see someone online and they say something and I go, I don't agree with that. I, I could perceive that in ways that open me up to conversation with that person or perceive it in ways that close me to that conversation. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, yeah, part of it. But sometimes, you know, I, I think there's even an, a step before the person expresses their opinion. Like if you just know your friend is... Republican and you're a Democrat, you may not even bridge the topic because of inferences or expectations you make Mm. ahead of time. So how can we kind of sidestep those or get people to reconstrue them to say, you know what, let me have a conversation with this person and let me see if we can't uh, kind of find some middle ground. What is it about word of mouth to make this about you? What is it about (laughs) word of mouth that is interesting to you? Like why why this? There are a billion things that people do in the in their lives. Why why word of mouth being the yeah. thing that captures your interest? Yeah, you know, um, in, in research, it's often described that people study one of two things: uh, either one, what they know very well themselves, or two, what they don't understand at all. And I am in that latter camp. I don't do a lot of word of mouth. You know, I'll recommend a movie here or there. But some people are constantly talking, constantly sharing their opinions, and I just don't understand it. And so this, you know, really excites me uh, to try and figure out why people are doing this 
and maybe how I could get better at word of mouth myself, because it, it is valuable. We know how impactful it can be on influencing others' attitudes and beliefs. Um, and so maybe I can even figure out how to motivate myself to convince others to vote for who I want to vote for. So I have all of these years of reading about word of mouth and studying word of mouth and asking people about whether they would recommend stuff. Has any of that changed anything that you've done in in your own life? <laughs> have you become an advocate as a result of this? Have you stopped advocating? It sounds like you didn't uh, do it as much before, but but yeah. yeah, has anything changed for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, no, probably. If anything, maybe it's become I've become less word of mouth because as soon as I have any urge to engage in word of mouth, I immediately begin an analysis of why I felt that way or wanted to do it. And by the time I've concluded my review, I've pretty much lost all interest in saying what I was going to say in the first place. Um, I find so like if I'm yeah watching a movie, I'll be like writing the review in my head <laughs> as I watch the movie. But then yeah, then it's like. Then it feels like, well, now I have my review in case anyone asks me what mm -hmm. my opinion was, but I don't, I don't, I'm kind of tired of my review by then. <laughs> I'm kind of like, well, I spent the last two hours writing this review. It seems like I've solved whatever problem <laughs> I had that made me write the review. So I don't, I don't actually need to share that with anybody. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel very similarly. And, you know, I think another underlying drive behind word of mouth, and this is more on the consumer side, is I've always just been really curious about why things become popular. You know, why did Twilight become such a sensation, even though, you know, the writing's not that good, the story's a little trite, but I... Uh, you know, a lot of it had to deal with the word of mouth. You look at movie sales and stuff and you can almost, you can very strongly predict their success by the burst in word of mouth that happens in the week leading up to its release. And so what is it? What about that movie or that product led to such popularity? Why is it now kind of a, a national talking point? And so th that's always been really curious to me as well. Do we know? I So there's a book, I'm forgetting now what it's called. Maybe I'll look it up. Have you read the book Hitmakers? No. It was a very cool book. It was written by, let me see, I'm going to pull it up. Yeah, uh, it <laughs> yeah it was called, uh, yeah, the title is Hitmakers, How to Succeed in an Age of Distraction. Uh, and it was written by Derek Thompson. I think he's, in, he's a writer for The Atlantic or something. Mm. Um, and so he pulls, yeah, uh, Derek Thompson, a uh, senior editor at The Atlantic Magazine, pulls a bunch of cool social science research to basically uh, ask that question of what, what is it that makes things popular? Um, what, are the, what are the qualities of popular things? And if I'm remembering right, I'm sure I'm getting this wrong, at least a little <laughs> bit, but there's some website where they were able to like play pop songs as they were being developed and they were using like just crowdsourced people's initial reactions and excitedness about those songs mm. to sort of pick like which ones they were going to invest in to yeah. to try and make get super popular. Um, and and it, and it seems like if also if I'm remembering right, there's nothing <laughs> super tangible about like why one song excites people more than another. But nevertheless, we we have access to to people's first reactions and that is informative right so mm -hmm. I, we haven't cracked the code of why one song goes viral <laughs> and the other one doesn't um unless maybe you know something that i don't is there uh, so your I interest know, in what makes things bit. popular yeah, what is it yeah so um 
who you should really have on your podcast is Jonah Berger because he does a lot of this research and um, is a big name in the field. But he has some recent work looking at why songs become more or less popular. And one of the key drivers he finds is that when a song is a little atypical for its genre, that tends to really help with its success. Now, too Mm -hmm. atypical and it kind of tanks it. But just different enough from the crowd. So, you know, there was the um, that Old Town Road song that became a huge success. Oh, sure. And even though it has maybe a little bit of a hip hop feel to it, it was released in a country genre. And the atypicality of that really kind of helped propel it to the monumental success that it had. And, And Jonah has some work looking at songs across... He also has it looking at movies, too, uh, where they a little bit of atypicality for its, its genre leads to greater popularity and success. Does that, does that stem back to the energizing qualities that you were talking about <laughs> earlier, that there's just something it captures your attention? It sort of makes you just like dissonant music makes you feel a little mm-hmm. uncomfortable because it's not quite what you're used to hearing. Um I definitely think that's involved. Yeah. I don't think he has uh, nailed down a particular mechanism behind it, Mm -hmm. Um, but it does seem to be a pretty robust effect and across uh, a a number of different domains. So, um, but yeah, interesting work. There we go. Another driving question for the field. Why does atypicality (laughs) uh, promote popularity? You're welcome. You're welcome <laughs> to the field for that for that idea. Uh, well, I, I think uh, I think that's that's all the time we have here. So thank you, Jake, for being yeah, with me. This is super pleasure. cool to hear about word of mouth stuff, uh, and hopefully we can talk to you again soon. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Andy. All right, welcome back, everybody. Thank you again to Jake for having that conversation about word of mouth. I want to follow up on a couple of things that came up toward the end of our talk. I was really interested when we were talking about um, what makes music super popular. What, How can we predict which songs become popular? So I went back to that book, Hitmakers, that I referenced in our conversation just to see if I was crazy. Did I actually remember this coming up? And I was right. Uh, there are services out there online that allow the music industry to sort of pre-test whether their songs are catchy enough to get a lot of airplay. One of those services is called Hit Predictor. And basically what they do is they just have thousands of people evaluate how catchy a new song is. And so they can get a catchiness score for each song before they spend a bunch of money promoting it. So they'll just play a hook from the new song and an online audience is going to listen to it and and just give their impression of how catchy it is. And they take a composite of all the scores that people give for these songs. Uh, And in his book, he he mentions, for example, that the song Hello by Adele, which went on to be obviously a smash hit, scored really, really high on this metric, which is consistent with it becoming such a popular song. He also points out, for example, that uh, a couple songs by Justin Bieber that I I couldn't sing for you if I tried, uh, by Drake the weekend etc also scored really high in the fall of 2015 and those are songs that went on to be popular one thing i think i mischaracterized about this though is that derek thompson in his book isn't saying that there are objective mystical qualities to a pop song that guarantee its success it's not quite what he's saying he's saying that not only are these super famous pop songs or just songs in general scoring really high on perceived catchiness 
But so are other songs that you've never heard of before because they didn't catch on. And so his point is, yes, there are certain songs that are are way more likely to catch on because they have some magic quality. But his real point is that only if that song gets airplay is it actually going to become a hit. Exposure is really important for what ends up catching on. So it's not that people are listening to every single new song that comes out and deciding for themselves whether they want to tell other people about. There are certain tastemakers in the industry that shape which are the songs that get played on the radio, which are the songs that get... um, which are the songs that show up in movies, etc., TV, whatever. Um, and those are really responsible for popularity. Jake also mentioned this study by Jonah Berger about something we can capture about a song that predicts its popularity. It was this study that was published in 2018 in the journal Psychological Science by Jonah Berger and Grant Packard. And what they did was pull all of the Billboard digital download rankings from 2014 to 2016. These Billboard rankings track downloads for most of the places people get their music, including, for example, iTunes and Google Play. So they have a ton of different songs and how popular they were, given as how often they were downloaded in this three-year span. Then they pulled the lyrics for all of those songs, and using digital text analysis technology, we're able to see what kinds of words form themes across these songs. And they found themes like anger and violence related words, like the words like bad, dead, hate, kill, and words like family related words, American boy, daddy, mama. Words related to girls and cars formed their own theme, car, drive, girl, kiss, and words related to spirituality, believe, grace, lord. And they found that genres of songs, on average, would have different patterns of language use. So, for example, not too surprisingly, Christian music emphasizes those spirituality-related words more than most other genres. Country music emphasizes language about girls and cars more than most other music. Rap music includes anger and violence-related words more often, and rock music Uh, uses words related to passionate love more often than other genres. And so what they did was then take each individual song and its lyrics to see how well a song's lyrics matched the patterns that are typical for its genre. So for example, they would take a specific country song and see whether its lyrics have girls and cars related language like that genre tends to have, but also does that specific song also emphasize anger and violence, which is unusual for that genre. And overall, they find that the more a song's lyrics show patterns that are pretty different from the patterns of words used in that entire genre, the more popular that song was, meaning the more it was downloaded on iTunes, Google Play, etc. So this is what Jake was talking about. We have some insight into what it is that makes a certain song more likely to catch on. And presumably, these are the songs we share with each other. I know I'm guilty of hearing a new song that captures my attention for some reason and wanting to share it with other people, maybe for some of the reasons that Jake talked about. So overall, if we think about a song's popularity, it seems like there's a lot going on. There are some things that are intrinsic to a song that make it especially catchy, that people can tell early on whether a song is catchy, has a good hook, 
And it may be driven, at least in part, by how different it is from the kinds of songs you normally hear. But it's also the case that not every great, catchy song is going to take off. There are other forces at play in our society, in our culture, and even random luck of the draw. All right, that's going to do it for this time. Thanks again for being here on Opinion Science Podcast. Uh, if you want to learn more about Jake and his work, go ahead and check out jaketeeny.com, T-E-E-N-Y, um, to see the kind of research that he's doing, the work that he's doing on word of mouth and other sorts of topics. And also, Jake is really interested in communicating psychology to the public. And so on his website, you'll be able to see his blog, Everyday Psychophilosophy, which he's kept for a long time. I really admire the, the amount of time he's put in uh, to communicating psychology to the world. You can check out more about the show at opinionsciencepodcast.com or like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, whatever you have to do. Um, But that's going to do it for us this week. We'll see you back next time when we learn more about the science of opinions. See you then.